Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 119, verses 161-168. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you know, I usually don't read scripture, so it's kind of nice to be able to do so once in a while. A uh, little, little background for today. You know, uh, I wasn't supposed to preach today. <laughs> Mark was supposed to preach today. And uh, he sent me an email on Friday, uh, late, I think late Friday. And he said, uh, you know, uh, Esther just had her doctor's appointment. Um, but, you know, I highly doubt she's going to deliver soon. So, uh, But it might be good just to think about, just in case she does, uh, what we're going to do. I wake up Saturday morning. I get an email. Okay, we're going to deliver now. We've got to use a backup plan. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna preach today on this Psalm Psalm 119, and uh, <clears throat> you know it's, it's similar to what he was gonna preach on because he was gonna preach on something related to the uh, importance of the word or the power of the word, and uh, I thought I would do something of a similar topic because uh, one of the things we've been trying to do this summer is we've been got, trying to go back to maybe some of the fundamentals or some of the basic Christian practices that are important in order to shape our hearts, in order to shape ourselves, and to grow in godliness. And today is going to be the last sermon uh, in terms of going over the, those kind of things because starting next week, we're going to start a new series on the life of Abraham. But today, what I wanted to do is look at a very important practice uh, relating to reading the Bible, related to... simply mean you just kind of listen to, to what it says, but there's this implication that when you hear it, you pay attention to it, you obey it. Uh, in addition to that, when you read some of the Psalms and how they approach God's word, you have things like, right, we should meditate upon it uh, in addition to reading it and studying it. We should love it. We should rejoice in it. We should delight in it. We should stand in awe of it. And we should praise God for it. And I think sometimes uh, we forget maybe some of the latter verbs. We focus on the uh, the study part and the... Uh, the read part, which are definitely crucial, but we forget in terms of uh, the importance of our heart's disposition towards it. There's this book out by Jonathan Haidt, and uh, he teaches at NYU. And I read a couple book reviews on this book, and it sounded pretty interesting and fascinating, so I bought it, and I haven't read it. But basically, when the book reviews are summarizing uh, his argument, he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Uh, he says this. He says... Uh, what people often think is the way we come to determine right and wrong uh, or good and evil is that we determine it based on our reason. So if somebody gives us a good argument for why something is right or wrong, then that's how we end up deciding what's right and wrong. But he kind of says that's not how people operate, but rather the way we come to a determination of what's right and wrong is primarily through intuition. We feel what is right and wrong, and then we use reason to kind of support it or explain it. So he has this illustration, and he says, you know, think about a rider on top of an elephant. And of course, the rider is important because the rider can do important things. The rider can learn new skills. The rider can uh, explain what's going on as he's riding the elephant. But the primary uh, mover or the chief mover 
is actually the elephant. And he says reason is kind of like the rider and intuition is kind of like the elephant. And especially in Western cultures, what we try to do is we focus on the rider. We focus on the reason. We try to come up with reasons for why uh, to believe in something. But he's saying it's actually we need to feel or have in intuition of why something is right and wrong. And that, that kind of got me thinking because... Uh, when it comes to understanding or learning or knowing the Bible, uh, perhaps we, we too often only think about the, uh, you know, it needs to make sense to us, uh, it needs to be reasonable, it needs to be logical, and of course those things are important, but maybe we don't spend enough attention thinking about the intuition part. How do we feel towards the Bible? How do we feel towards the Word of God? And if we read the Psalms, I think it, it's challenging, not in what it tells us about what the Word of God is, but what I find challenging is the emotions or the feelings or the actions associated with the Word of God. And, uh, you know, if we read, if we were to read this entire Psalm, Psalm 119, which is the longest Psalm in the book of Psalms, uh, you're gonna see expressions like this. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches, right? I delight. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. And you see these expressions are filled with emotions of delight, emotions of longing, emotions of even desperation, that I desperately need this word and I cling to it. And if you didn't know that this was talking about uh, God's word or the Bible, then you would almost think this is kind of like a love poem written to a, uh, a lover. Now, if you're a Christian, maybe in your lifetime, you've often asked yourself this question, do I, do I know the Bible well enough, right? Do I know the Bible well enough? And to be sure, that's, of course, an important question to ask. But I also think that question can sometimes breed a little bit of spiritual pride in us, where we think, you know, if we have enough knowledge or understanding of the Bible or theology, or if we can answer the questions in the right way, then maybe we're mature. Uh, maybe we've arrived. Maybe we are people who are godly. And I think that's the great mistake of seminary and the assumption if somebody went to seminary, you automatically think this must be a godly person because they studied uh, the word of God. But uh, that's, of course, an important question. But I think there's a more important question to ask before we ask that question. And it's this. How do I feel towards the word of God? They, they feel awesome, right? They're enjoying it for sure. They're delighting in it. Right? How, how do I feel towards the Word of God? Is this something that I love? Is the Bible something that I treasure? Do I long for it? Do I cling to its truth? Do I find it to be sweet to my soul and sweet to my heart? I think that's exactly the kind of thing that we see expressed in this psalm. And by the way, I think if we have this right heart, I think the knowledge part actually takes care of itself. And the reason I say that is, you know, what, one of the sh most um, maybe soul-shaping, maybe life-shaping experiences I've had uh, was the first time I went to China. It was many, many years ago, uh, probably about, how old am I now? 34, so probably about like 10 years ago. Uh, my first trip to China many years ago, uh, I, went, I went with Pastor John, and basically, you know, we went around these like different random places from like cities to like rural areas, um, and we just basically taught Bible and we taught some theology. And what I was struck by in these Chinese Christians is they had this deep, insatiable hunger uh, for God's word to learn more. 
And you meet them, and even though they didn't have a lot of resources at the time, they didn't have a lot of theology books or books that、uh, maybe people in the West have, they knew the Bible so well because they read it so many times, they meditated on it for a, such a long time, and they even memorized entire large portions of Scripture. It was just something that was deeply a part of them. And then we came to teach, and、uh, I, I kid you not, for hours and hours, right, we would teach, and they would still want to learn more. And I was getting tired, and I was like, oh man. You know, back in the States, if I speak for more than 45 minutes, people start to get annoyed. <laughs> But here in China, right, this experience, I was so、uh, humbled by、uh, this desire, this deep desire, and this deep love and passion to、uh, drink deeply of the Word of God. And I think that began not from the question of do I know enough Bible? I think the fun- more fundamental question we would ask is、uh, what was their relationship with the Bible? How did they feel towards The word of God, and they had this deep love and longing and hunger for the word of God. You know, sometimes uh, I think um, you know, we, we could be a little bit proud because maybe we do have a lot of knowledge, and so、uh, sometimes we might think, you know, what, what could the Bible possibly say in my circumstance or my situation?、Uh, it sounds so irrelevant. I've, I've heard enough、uh, sermons, I've read enough、uh, passages, I know this passage, and there's this sp- spiritual pride that breeds within us. But I think when we, again, look at the psalm and contrast the attitude of the psalmist with maybe sometimes our attitudes when it comes to the Bible,、uh, it should be very humbling. And there should be something that we say, maybe we're not thinking about the Bible in the right way. Or maybe, even better yet, maybe we're not feeling. Uh, the Bible in the right way because there is no longing or desire. You see, if we want real knowledge of God,、uh, we definitely need more than simply an intellectual knowledge of the Bible because we need a knowledge that is born out of this delight, out of this delight of having a personal relationship with Him.、Uh, for some of us, maybe we've experienced being in a close relationship with someone and、uh, therefore we can actually、uh, hear their thoughts, we can anticipate what they would say in a certain situation. You know, my wife and I, we have been married for almost seven years now. And in that time, I think、uh, we are starting to now hear each other's voice in our heads in certain situations. And so let me give you an example.、Uh, when I'm driving with her,、uh, you know what I hear in my head? I hear, come on, pass the car, pass the car. Honk at this car. Go faster, go faster, right? And the reason I hear that in my head is because. Uh, for many, 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 many years, right? She literally said it, and she said it over and over and over and over again. And it's just kind of something now that's a part of me and something that I now think. Her thoughts have now become my thoughts. And conversely, when she goes shopping, she hears me saying, Do we really need that? Do we, do we really need that? Are we actually going to use that? Come on, do we really need that? And I think the reason is because I've said that many, 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 many times throughout our marriage, throughout our lifetime. And now she begins to hear my thoughts in her head in certain situations. And I think the more time we spend in scripture, and if we have this mentality of, oh, I've read it before, or oh, I already know it, then I think we're missing the point of the relational aspect and the depth that we can get out of scripture. Because if we read something over and over and over a long period of time, I think what really happens is that we begin to maybe hear God's thoughts. Or to put it another way, we begin to think God's thoughts after Him. And that takes a long time. That takes a lot of meditation. That takes even maybe memorization. That takes being in Scripture and reading it over and over and over again. But foundationally, I think what it takes is this delight in being in relationship with Him and understanding that this is God and this is God speaking to us. And so we're going to look at the small sample from Psalm 119. 
And as I, as I said before, as I was reading this passage, I was just so immediately struck by the verbs that are used here that the writer uh, uses to describe his actions in relation to the Word of God. He says this, My heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. And I think that's a very different attitude towards the Bible that the average person maybe in New York would have. And uh, maybe if we were to rewrite this psalm and uh, line it with maybe some of the attitudes that people in New York might have, maybe it would sound something like this. I am ambivalent at your word, like one who might find a quarter on the ground. And if I need it, I'll pick it up and use it. But otherwise, it doesn't really impact my life in any way. Or we might say, you know, I hate and abhor falsehood. But who's to say what's true? Nobody has the truth. And you see, there's this world of difference between the feeling and the attitudes of this writer here and a lot of the attitudes we might experience or we might feel or we might hear about. And you see, this writer, he actually equates God's word to finding great spoil or treasure. Imagine that. It's not like finding a quarter, but it's like hitting the jackpot. It's like finding this great new restaurant that's really cheap and never crowded and really close to your apartment, right? It elicits these feelings of great joy. It's like, I found it. And that's the kind of attitude or that's the kind of heart we ought to feel when we come to the Bible. But why does the psalmist have this attitude? How does he see the nature of God's word? And I basically just want to reflect on two quick things here. Uh, the first thing I think we can say is that God's word is unshakable even when life seems to get shaken. Verse 161, it begins by saying, Princes persecute me without cause. And we don't have a lot of detail here, but it's obvious there's some suffering here, there's some injustice here, there's persecution here. And I think the natural response when we experience some of these kinds of things or when we experience suffering is to be shaken by it. But the response here is interesting because he responds by being in awe. He stands in awe of God's words. And then if you fast forward to verse 165, he says, Great peace have those who love your law. So even in the face of persecution and suffering, God's word is his source of strength. He is in awe of it, and it brings him great peace. Now, of course, there's a lot that we could say here, but... Uh, let me try to do it this way, and let me try to encapsulate it in a story. John Newton. Uh, if you don't know who John Newton is, he was a pastor, uh, formerly a slave trader, and uh, he wrote this, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And he's actually more famous for a collection of letters that he wrote than his sermons, and I hear that his sermons weren't that good, <laughs> but his, his writings were actually very pastoral, and uh, you know, they've been published and uh, people read it. So there's, one of the, there's a story in one of his letters uh, where he recalls how he visited a young woman who was dying. Uh, and, uh, you know, she was a kind of woman. She lived a very simple life. She never traveled more than 12 miles from her home. And she could read her Bible, but she had read very little else. And a few days before her death, John Newton visited her and prayed with her. And on her deathbed, she said to him, and I'm going to quote, and you're going to excuse, maybe you have to excuse the old English here a little bit. Uh, but she says to him, Sir, you are highly favored on being called to preach the gospel. I've often heard you with pleasure, but give me leave to tell you that I now see all you have said or can say is comparatively but little. 
nor till you come into my situation and have death and eternity in full view will it be possible for you to conceive the vast weight and importance of the truths you declare. Oh, sir, it is a serious thing to die. No words can express what, a needful, uh, what is needful to support the soul in the solemnity of a dying hour. And I imagine hearing those words as a pastor, you kind of, it kind of hits you in the face and you remember this high calling to preach and to teach the Word of God and the very thing that you are called to handle and the very importance and impact that these truths have on the lives of people. Suffering and death are powerful forces because what they do is they strip us naked and they remind us of what we really are, that we are weak and that we are vulnerable. And in some ways, suffering and death makes us see reality clearer uh, like clear as day as how we ought to always see it. But I also think that in those moments when God gives us the grace and the faith to believe and to trust in Him, in those moments are when His words of promise and truth and hope can really be like sweet honey to our lips, the very things that we need to taste, the very things that we need to drink of. When His word says things like God is faithful and He is righteous and His love is steadfast and He will vindicate us and He will bless us and there will one day be a day where there is no more pain or tears or sin or death. When it comes to God, these truths actually mean something. And these are the very truths that we need to hear. And John Newton, he was reminded of the power of God's word as well as the sweetness of God's word from this dying woman. The second thing I think we see in the psalm is this, that God's word gives us a greater reality in the midst of lesser realities. And uh, in verse 163, it says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. And the implication here is that God's truth, God's law, God's word is the opposite of falsehood, which means that it is truth. And uh, I know the cultural narrative has a certain perspective on the nature of truth, and it thinks that truth is more elusive, and uh, people say, how can you truly know what truth is? Uh, but however we define it, I think everybody would at least agree that truth is important. Uh, truth is something that's better than a lie. Truth is something worth seeking. Uh, and that's why we have so many people go on these quests for truth, because they want to learn what is true. Uh, even in the Olympics, you know, the story that dominated the headlines was what? Ryan Lochte. And uh, I guess he lied or he over-exaggerated uh, his story about getting robbed at gunpoint. And everybody wanted to know what happened. Right? Everybody wanted to know the truth. Everybody was, I guess, maybe somewhat obsessed with it because it began to overtake uh, some of the uh, Olympic stories. And I think that tells us something, that we care about the truth. We want to know what's true. We don't want the lie. But, and we, uh, I think we also live in a strange time. And uh, honestly, it's getting a little bit disconcerting. And I'm starting to read a lot of articles about how people are starting to leave, live these like disembodied existences, meaning that uh, you live your life in like virtual reality or in the online world. And uh, you know, I was talking to somebody a while ago in college ministry, and you know, one of the problems that uh, I guess he was saying about college guys in particular is uh, they play too many video games, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, you know. When I went to college, that's what people did too. <laughs> but I guess it's like to a whole new level. And uh, I guess because you can kind of have like this online community, essentially in, in these video games, you, you kind of live in this world, right? And you kind of, you still get the, the social connections because you connect with other people who are playing this game. And it, it's like overtaking some people's lives. Then you have the pornography epidemic. And what is that? That's a, a virtual expression of what reality isn't. 
It's trying to get a sexual relationship through the virtual world rather than the way it's supposed to be through a relationship, through a covenant relationship. And uh, I think initially the virtual world, it seems more attractive to people because in some ways it's easier. But I think uh, eventually along the lines, uh, the lack of authenticity of it uh, makes it crumble and people uh, see that it is a problem. I was going to say something about Pokemon Go, but um, I know people here play it. <laughs> but do you know somebody died in Japan because of it? Don't drive while you play. Uh, there's this movie that came out a couple years ago with Joaquin Phoenix. And I, I don't think it's a super popular movie, so I don't know if, uh, how many people have seen it, but it's a movie called Her. And uh, because I don't know if too many people have seen it, let me explain uh, the basic plot of it. Joaquin Phoenix, he plays this character, and uh, he lives in a time where technology has advanced, and you have things like artificial intelligence, and there's this uh, operating system voiced by uh, Scarlett uh, Johansson, and uh, basically he falls in love with this operating system. And uh, there's a scene in the movie where you know, he was married at one point to an actual woman, and he's talking to his ex-wife, and he's telling her that he's found somebody and that he's happy. And when she finds out that he's dating his computer, the conversation begins to turn sour, and we begin to understand why their marriage didn't work out. And in this scene, she says that he had placed expectations on her that she was ultimately not able to meet. And when she says this, she says, you wanted to have a wife without the challenges of actually dealing with anything real. I think that gives us maybe a little bit of insight uh, into this character and why he has fallen in love with this operating system. Uh, this operating system is something that conforms to his desires, that basically does whatever he wants, and therefore to him it's a perfect relationship. And uh, I think what the, uh, you know, reading a few of the reviews that came out during this time, uh, I think what a lot of people observed, and maybe I think this is what the director was trying to show, is there is something fundamentally wrong or something fundamentally flawed with that kind of relationship, with a lack of authenticity in that relationship. You see, a real relationship doesn't just conform to what you want all the time, but there's going to be times where it's going to challenge you and cross your will. If God is a reality and not some virtual character that we have made up in our minds, and if God is a God who speaks, like uh, the Bible says, then it's going to mean a few things for us. First, it's of course going to mean that there's going to be times where the Bible challenges our will. There's going to be times where uh, the Bible says something and we don't necessarily like it or we don't necessarily agree with it. But that shouldn't, uh, that shouldn't make us lead to, a, lead to a conclusion to say, oh, I don't want to worship a God like that. Because just as we prayed in that prayer before, uh, we don't want a God in which we shape according to our own desires and according to our own vision. But if God truly is a reality and he's not some figment of our imagination, then God is who he is, right? God is who he says he is. And there's going to be times where we are going to be challenged by that. But second, I think more importantly, it means this, that God... He speaks words of truth and hope. And when we get to the New Testament, it tells us that God climactically does that in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate word. Now, the Christian faith is one that is based on reality, which means that it's also based on historical reality. And that means that Jesus actually died. Uh, that also means that Jesus really historically and bodily rose again from the dead and that is why Christians are supposed to have hope because we believe that that actually happened and if it didn't happen then what Paul says is then we are a people who are to be pitied uh, because we believe in basically this false story this fake narrative but the Christian faith is about reality 
And it says that God is real. And it says that Jesus is real. And it said that his death is real. Sin is real. And his resurrection is real. And if all of these things are true, and if all of these things are real, then it means our hope is real as well. And when Jesus died and when he rose again from the dead, it was actually his vindication. It was the vindication that everything that God had said, everything that God had spoken was true. It means that his promises of new life, new creation, new heaven, new earth, new city, a place with no sin, death, or tears, is a reality that we look forward to. And I think that's super important to remember. Uh, about a year ago, I remember talking to this Jewish man and uh, he knew I was a pastor, and uh, he he was kind of arguing with me about uh, about the New Testament. And he said, you know, the stuff that Jesus said and the stuff that Jesus did, it, what he did is he basically subverted the meaning of the Hebrew Scriptures. Right? He he flipped the Torah upside down. And I, I just can't accept the things that Jesus did and Jesus said and the, the claims that Jesus made because uh, that's not my understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures. And I said to him, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think Jesus did completely flip the Hebrew Scriptures upside down. I think if you were a Jewish person, it would be incredibly difficult to accept and to hear and to receive the things that Jesus said uh, because it completely changes your paradigm, it completely changes your perspective, and it completely changes the way that you understand God and what God's ultimate plan was. And after I said that, you know, I completely agree with you. But then why do you think so many Jewish people believed in him? Why do you think so many Jewish people would actually believe in him to the point where uh, they were willing to die for him, to be persecuted for him? Why do you think that happened? And he kind of said, huh. <laughs> I don't think I convinced him of the reality of the resurrection, but uh, it wasn't something that he had considered before. And I said, you know, my conclusion is this. Uh, these Jewish people, uh, they changed their paradigm because they encountered something real. They encountered the resurrected Christ. And even though it, uh, it completely changed the way they thought about the scriptures, after they encountered the resurrected Christ, uh, they saw the reality of who he was and what he said. See, if you're here today and if you believe in the truth of the resurrection, then it means this. God's word is so precious. It's so precious. It means that his laws and his rules are precious, and we should praise him for it. It means we should delight in his word, and we should cling to it as much as we can. Uh, you know, my, um, my daughter back there, she, she loves frozen yogurt, and as she eats it, uh, you know, the yogurt begins to melt, and uh, it gets a little messy, and so what I try to do is I try to take it away from her. Uh, but she don't let me take it away. <laughs> she holds on to it so firmly and so tight because it's, it's valuable to her. Uh, think of that imagery as we think about our relationship with the Word of God. Is that something we, we do? Is it something that we cling to so tight because it's so precious to us and so sweet to us? I pray that it, it becomes that for all of us and that we read it and study it and meditate on it and discuss it Pray it, sing it, delight in it, rejoice in it, praise God for it, pay attention to it, obey it, and finally find our hope in it. Let's pray together.